Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm fabulous, David. Thank you very much. We're, we're, it's not spring yet, but it's getting really close. Spring-ish. Yes. It's spring-ish. It's sun's out and the days are getting longer. I'm Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, last week, uh, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan Bill uh, Act, I guess, uh, a 1.9 trillion, that's with a T, uh, dollar uh, COVID relief bill, although it's much uh, more than that one, we'll, we'll sort of get into that. Uh, Bernie Sanders has called this piece of legislation the most significant piece of legislation to benefit working families in the modern history of this country. Uh, and so what we want to do today is sort of to, to, to look at the, the American Rescue Plan Act and, and sort of try to place it into some context, some people are comparing this to the Great Society, some people are comparing it to the New Deal. Um, and so, so some people are, are saying, well, maybe this is something else entirely. So let's, let's look at what this bill is and, and how we can make sense of it. Frank, what, what's your initial thoughts on the, the American Rescue Plan? It's huge. <laughs> You know, and, and uh, I mean, we live in an age of hyperbole where everything is the greatest of all time, right? This thing is huge. I mean, to give you some scale, at $1.9 trillion, uh, the, the GDP of the United States is approximately $21 trillion per annum. So it's, mm. it's, 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 it's of that order of magnitude. The U.S. has spent since December approximately $3 trillion on COVID relief and, and matters related to, to, to COVID. Um, I think over the past year, it's in the neighborhood of six. So going back to the start of it, uh, to give you some perspective on that, I uh, heard a figure over the weekend that the U.S. spent a total of something, adjusted for, for in, in today's dollars, $4.4 trillion on the Second World War. Hmm. So this thing is, is absolutely massive and potentially transformative. I think one thing we've made clear over the history of this podcast is that our um, ability to predict the future is pretty much unmatched in its in its uh, in its uh, inaccuracy <laughs> in yeah. its absence. Yes, thank you. Uh, and so I'm a little I'm a little reluctant to uh, to 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 try to predict what, what's going to happen, but potentially. And that, uh, this this really is, uh, I think, as Senator Sanders said, you know, one of the most important pieces of legislation in in modern American history. So so it's not just another thing. Yeah, just another sort of way to sort of say how big this is. Uh, the New Deal was about forty billion dollars, and obviously got to adjust that for inflation and the fact that the United States is a lot more populous now than it was in the nineteen thirties. But if you sort of control for inflation and, and population size, this is about the same size as the New Deal in terms of the amount of money being spent per person. So it's about five thousand something dollars, five thousand five hundred dollars per person uh, in the country being spent either both on the New Deal and on the American Rescue Plan. So if the New Deal is big, this seems to be similarly big. Although the New Deal was a much bigger section of the G of the economy. Uh, than, than this is. So which in that case, it's much smaller. But um, regardless of your metric, I think this is a big piece of legislation. Yeah. And I think I think a good way to think about it, and this is a comparison I, uh, I'd i like to see us develop over the next mm. few minutes is 
with the American Recovery Act, which was the legislation adopted by the Obama administration at approximately the same point in 2009. Mm -hmm. So the incoming uh, Obama-Biden administration in 2009 was faced with the um, consequences of of the financial crisis of 2007-8, particularly the near crash in 2008 or the crash of 2008. And it passed a bill which they believed at the time was as big as they could get, although they wanted more, which uh, that bill, which was again, 12 years ago, it was $831 billion. It was big, but it wasn't anything of the scale of this thing. Uh, one can argue that the crisis we're facing now is of an order of magnitude bigger than that crisis was as well. But, but the, the scale and scope of this thing, and particularly the reach of it, given the, its various provisions, could be transformative, I think, in, in, in terms of uh, modern American history. So I think, it, I, think, I think it's really important, and I think it's really mm-hmm. significant. Okay, so, you know, just thinking about about where all this $1.9 trillion is going, I think it's, uh, you know, the the thing that's catching people to the headlines is the is the uh, $1,400 check that Americans will be getting or direct deposit uh, they'll be getting as a consequence of this. But that's only, only quote unquote, uh, $411 billion of the 1.9 trillion. So it's actually only a, a segment of the, the total amount of money being, being spent. Um, what's the rest of the money going towards, Frank? Well, you've probably got more accurate figures in front of you than, than, than I do, David, but it's going for all kinds of things. It's going for some interesting things hmm. uh, to my way of thinking. I mean, there's there's the tax credit for children, which I think is really, really important. And if the estimates are correct, uh, you know, and some of the things we've heard hmm. in, in the days since this bill was adopted, you know, it could cut child poverty in the United States in half. Yeah, that's true. That seems to me to be massively transformative. So that's the other big ticket item. But then there are things like there's a lot of money set aside for um, indigenous peoples, for for, for Mm. Native Americans, particularly for health and infrastructure projects, which I think is is really important. Uh, There there is a huge amount of money for education, both to, to allow an immediate return to school, but also to um, improve educational, you know, the, the physical plant in schools around mm. the country. And well, I mean, there. what other things caught your eye, David? Well, so, I mean, I guess the, 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 the big ticket items are the, the money going to state, local and tribal governments, which is 300 something billion dollars. Um, unemployment benefits, which is another 200 billion dollars. Um, so there's, there's, you know, and as you point out, there's a lot of small programs, small compared to the big size of the 1.9 trillion, but actually quite large in terms of their, uh, you know, the amount of money being spent. So, Frank, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, and that's all great. One, one, um, one comment I think we need to make, or we need to consider, is the process here. Hmm. So, one reason there's so much stuff in this bill is because, thanks to the filibuster and things we have talked about in the past, and will undoubtedly talk about in the future, the United States government is sclerotic and very rarely can actually take this kind of, adopt this kind of legislation. Mm. And so consequently, and so this was done through budget reconciliation, which means uh, a filibuster-proof majority was not needed in order to advance this legislation. So it's one reason why we see so many things in here that don't seem to be immediately related to COVID relief, Mm. because 
of the kind of peculiar situation we find ourselves in procedurally, not just in Congress, but particularly in the Senate. So that's something we, that's, that's important context for this. It's one reason why the bill is so huge, frankly. Um, and and uh, if the system functioned as it was designed to function, and as at one time it did function, mm. then this might have been a series of bills, but instead they had to get it all through in one. This might be the only thing that the Biden administration passes. I mean, that, that, that's entirely possible. Uh, and I and think I think regrettable. I was struck in doing the background reading for this. Uh, you know, the the Trump administration, I think, only passed two things, two major pieces of legislation. There was uh, the there was the CARES Act, I think it was. Mm. I think they called it for, for, for COVID relief and the, the massive tax cut. But that was it. Uh, and so and, and on one hand, that was. And, and Obama only passes two pieces of legislation. Right, you know, they passed the Re the Recovery Act and, and Obamacare, and that was. And the That's right. And so, so I think the I, we need to get back to the substance of the bill. I'm sorry to have hijacked this this, hmm. this train of thought, but it's important to bear in mind that one reason there is so much in this is because of the peculiar situation in in Congress, especially the Senate. So that's because because yeah. some people have rightly said, you know, why is that in the COVID relief bill. Uh, and one reason is that they packed as much as they could in because this is their one shot at getting something through. And they clearly decided to go big. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this is a, some people have noticed this is a shift from the sort of incrementalism that you saw under both Obama and under Clinton, where they were trying to gradually change things. This seems to be a much bigger uh, go big or go home kind of moment. And as you point out, this, you know, this bill passed with no Republican votes in either the House or the Senate. Um, despite the fact that 70% of the American public seems to be in favor of this bill, according to polling from Pew and, and other places. Uh, now, the Republicans' response to that is the Americans don't know what's in this bill because the bill is so huge. Um, and and uh, the question about paying for it is, is also uh, uh, up in the air. Although it should be said, David, 60% of Republicans, according to the polling, bill, support the bill as well, bill, yes. of rank and file Republicans. Uh, Republicans, yes. Uh, to be sure. Um, now, now, when we sort of compare this to, to the antecedents, uh, whether the, the Great Society or the New Deal, how do you think this this fits or compares to them? Uh, I mean, on one hand, it's of a piece of them um, mm. in, in the sense that this is, if we can see, one way to interpret a modern American political history is a kind of pendulum swinging between big government and small government. We're back to big government again. This is this is big government. This is government, mm. a major government intervention in the, um, not just in the economy of the United States, but in individual, the lives of individual Americans. So in that, it's definitely on that side of the spectrum. I think interestingly though, unlike the New Deal, we're not gonna see lots of, um, new institutions created by this mm. or new bureaucracies created by it necessarily because a lot of this is occurring a lot of the the wealth transfer and that's what a lot of this is that's occurring is occurring uh at least as far as american individual americans will experience it as you know once you get past your 1400 check mm. most of it is actually tax credits and that's important but it's not it's not the same thing as as um i don't know the wpa put you know building a sidewalk outside of your house and putting a plaque mm. in it saying this was built by the WPA in 1937 or whatever. Um, so so it, it, it's a little bit different that way. But I, I think it's of a scale and significance with the New Deal. Mm. I also think, I think one reason it's similar to the New Deal is because of the widespread 
nature of the benefits puts it the wrong way, but of the, you know, this is going to affect all, most the, the vast majority of Americans, mm -hmm. the great society and the war on poverty were seen at least by many white Americans as benefiting non-white Americans. And, you know, this was seen as taking money from us and giving it to them. This is taking money from the future and giving it to everybody at the same time, essentially. Um, and so I think it's different in the, I think it's more like the new deal in that respect. What do you think? Uh, well, so I think you're, the similarities in the New Deal are, are interesting uh, in as much as, you know, they're, they're both are a response to a national and, and global crises, um, whether it's a, a, a pandemic or, or a, a financial uh, crisis. Uh, one of the big differences, though, um, and I think this is a real shift, um, and, uh, is that during the New Deal, there was a, a very strong opposition to simply giving people who were poor money. That, that, that part of the ethos of the New Deal was that, yes, people are impoverished because of the Depression, but we need to link the money the government is giving them to work that they are doing, right? Which meant that the government was, was creating programs like the WPA, where they're doing things like painting murals on post office, which are beautiful, or planting trees like, you know, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps did, or, or all these other kinds of government programs that were built during the New Deal, which had sort of lasting consequences um, on the landscape and other places. Uh, but part of that was because FDR, part of his sort of mentality about how government related to people was that it actually had to be payment for work. Uh, and obviously the context of the pandemic makes paying people for work very difficult because you want to keep people socially distanced and all these kinds of things. So you can't have people going and sort of planting trees or whatever it is that the, the CCC was doing. So this is a very different model in some ways of, of redistributing, you know, talking about wealth redistribution, you know, both the New Deal and the American Rescue Plan are doing that, but this is doing that without that explicit um, work component to it. I think that's right, David. I think one of the reasons that is palatable, even though all every Republican in Congress voted against this, mm. is because the Trump administration did the same thing last year. So, you know, there was a $1,400 pay payment that came from the, the, there were two payments. There was the $1,400 payment uh, from the Trump administration with Donald Trump's name on the check. And then there was the $600 one at the end of the year. And so, mm. the, the, because, and the Trump administration essentially took the view Rightly, in my view, look, this is different. This is this is this is a unique crisis. We're basically paying people to stay home so as not to spread the, the this to make the pandemic worse. And that principle having been established, mm -hmm. there was actually pressure on the Biden administration, at least with regard to the, the the individual relief payments, to continue them because the pandemic had continued. But the ideological debate over making those payments um, just didn't occur last year. The, the, the traditional one, the sort of uh, the argument that people must work if they're going to get benefits. Mm. This yeah. was not seen as a benefit. This was seen as a crisis. I suppose it's a benefit when somebody else gets it, right? Mm -hmm. It's yeah, not a benefit yeah. when you get it, right? And this this is a case in point because it was going to everybody in response to the crisis, I think, or almost everybody, there was a recognition. So, so the ideological opposition, at least to that aspect of it, uh, has hasn't been present at least in the past year. Yeah, you know, and, and, and to that extent, I think there's a you know a thread that, that this is you know, this is a, this is a turning point. You know, there was a rhetoric starting with the Reagan administration 
about about welfare queens and people getting money from the government uh, and then spending it, um, you know, lavishly on whatever it is that, that Reagan said welfare queens were spending money on, um, all the way through to to Clinton, you know, when he talked about ending welfare as we know it and linking welfare to to searching actively searching for for employment. You know, one of the things that the American Rescue Plan is doing is actually sort of rolling some of that back, those changes back to sort of the uh, great society model of, of, of aid for, for women uh, and dependent children um, that had, had been, been swiped, had been, been taken away by, by Clinton's welfare uh, reform program. Um, so, you know, this is a bill that does hark back to, to these sort of models from the great society and, um, and the New Deal. And in some ways, you know, Biden is reminding me of LBJ uh, you know, both of them before their president were seen as moderate Democrats. Um, you know, if you just look at who, who Biden has been over his very long political career, he, he has not always been on the liberal wing of the party. He probably still isn't even on the liberal wing of the party. Um, but, you know, he, he was a moderate Democrat, former senator, former vice president. And, but when he comes into office, institutes an enormous uh, you know, program. You know, one of the differences, and I think you pointed this out with the New Deal, that's different about this American Rescue Plan, is unclear what the long-term implications of this will be, whether this is a short-term, uh, you know, injection to, to sort of deal with, uh, pardon the, the pun there, um, injection to, to, to fix the pandemic, or whether this is actually heralding a change in, in, in structure of, 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 of the economy. Uh, the tax cuts, for instance, are only supposed to be, I think, for a couple of years um, and the tax credits. Uh, but Biden has implied that he hopes to make those permanent, uh, which would actually, I think, make it be a major change to, to um, how we think about, about, about the sort of structure of, of poverty in the United States and how, what government's role is in combating it. Yeah, I mean, there are several things to respond to there, David. Uh, I think one is Biden, and I'm glad you, you made that point. Biden has, President Biden has surprised me a little bit in the, in the past 50 days or 50 plus days insofar as I had some optimism when he took office because I felt, and you and I discussed this both on air and off air, and I think I might have had a little more faith in him than you did or a little more optimism about him in this regard than you did, but um, in that I thought he was, I thought he had the right temperament for the moment. I wasn't all that optimistic because uh, particularly after the election, it wasn't clear that the Democrats would win those two Georgia seats. Mm. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't all that optimistic that he'd be able to get much done legislatively, but I thought, felt in terms of the kind of um, pastoral role of the president of the United, that the president of the United States is often called to play, that he was particularly well-suited by temperament and experience to do that. But I didn't have huge expectations, I have to confess, about his policy agenda. And so he's exceeded those expectations. And you know, this is a this is a really, really substantial and potentially transformative piece of legislation, as I've, I've already said today. Uh, but he, it's, it's, I think you, it's fair to say it's pretty radical in many respects. You're right. Maybe he doesn't represent the liberal wing of the party because the liberal wing of the party has moved to the left. Mm. But, but, but it's pretty damn liberal, actually. If we talk about liberal as, as uh, liberalism is a key element of liberalism in American history, being about activist government. You know, yeah. the, the, this is this is this is pretty big. And, and I think that that's a, res, a reflection of 
the nature of the crisis and the severity of the crisis. I think it's a reflection of lessons learned. And he's, his, he said a little bit about this and certainly his spokespeople have about the lesson learned from 2008, nine. You know, and I, th I think that he, you know, he said that the uh, Obama administration, you know, should have gone bigger back in 2009 and also should have talked up its achievements more in mm. 2009. And I think I think they're going to, I think they've learned that lesson. But I think there are elements of this that are, frankly, Rooseveltian, if I can, if mm. I can use that phrase. And I, I think that he's risen to that moment. I do think as far as the long lasting nature of it, that's an interesting question, because the nature of the crises being addressed are very different. I mean, the, the depression was very, very prolonged. Mm. Um, and as you know, there's a big debate among historians about how effective the New Deal actually was as a response to the, to the depression. The underlying indicators, and this is where I, I need to stipulate I'm neither a prognosticator nor an economist, but many of the underlying indicators are, uh, at the moment, suggest that the United States might be per, uh, might be, uh, on the precipice post um, post pandemic to have an economic boom because of the amount of savings that have built up over the past year and so on and so forth. And, and I was reading in The Economist this morning, there are projections that the United States, US economic growth might outpace that of China in the coming year because of mm. this. I'm not qualified to comment on that, but the, the point being that's a real, that's a possibility in the immediate aftermath of this legislation. Uh, now causation is not necessarily correlation in a way that wasn't the case with the New Deal. Yeah. And that could redound to Biden's benefit. It could also redound to the benefit of liberalism. You know, I'm using that as a kind of, uh, using that term advisedly. If people associate the, an economic boom with the, if they, if they, if in their minds the two are associated, this this uh, legislation and that economic boom. As I said, causation and correlation are more complicated than that. but. The context is very is different, but I think in Biden uh, there are Rooseveltian. Yeah. Elements. Well, and when we think about sort of the early phases of the New Deal, I mean, those were were intended to be short term fixes to to the immediate crisis, and I think this is um, at least initially appears to be something like that. You know, the other elements of the New Deal, the more long lasting, um, you know, pieces of legislation like like uh, the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the, 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 the Wagner Act and the you know, Glass-Steagall Bank, all, all this kind of stuff that there's more of the, per, the long social security, um, those more permanent fixtures came later. David, uh, one element of this that got a lot of attention, particularly because uh, it didn't have enough support from, from Democrats or from, Dem well, enough support from Democrats in the Senate, frankly, uh, was the failure to pass the rise in the minimum wage as mm. part of this as part of this and so uh, in fact initially when this came out it was because of the emphasis on that issue i think this act was was presented as something of a failure um now i think it's too early to assess the the consequences of the act yet of course mm. it's only been a week but uh can you can you re respond to that i mean why 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 didn't they increase the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour as was suggested and how significant do you think that omission is uh, so the the you know the first as you point out the first that the first version of this bill that the House passed had a fifteen dollar minimum wage it didn't make headway in the Senate in part because of the opposition of really sort of two or three Democrats but also the the Senate parliamentarian 
said it wasn't as part of this sort of reconciliation process organic to the bill. And that gets into complicated Senate rules that we don't have time to get into. And I don't fully understand more the latter really than the former. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the, the sort of impetuses of this bill uh, is, is, is to, to really help those people who have been hurt most by the pandemic. Uh, and I think that helps explain sort of the tax credits uh, especially tax credits for children. You know, th these checks that are going out are gonna be uh, especially beneficial to people at the lower end of the, of the uh, uh, income spectrum. Uh, the expansion of the earned income tax credit uh, is gonna be, you know, likewise very important for people who are, who are uh, not particularly well off. Um, and, and, you know, the minimum wage is gonna be sort of part of that of trying to sort of, of lift uh, people out of, out of poverty at, at the same time that they are trying to sort of deal with the pandemic. And those two things are, are clearly linked because the people at that end of the, the, the income spectrum have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, um, both financially and also in terms of, of health outcomes. Um, you know, in this respect, I think that there's a similar, the, the failure to include the $15 minimum wage is, is similar to some of the, the compromises that were made uh, both in the Great Society and in, in the New Deal, where, you know, what we ended up with, with Social Security or some of these other kinds of landmark pieces of legislation was not the initial original plan put in, uh, in proposal uh, put, in, uh, uh, put in, in play in Congress, but it's sort of a compromise, uh, uh, watered down version. Um, we don't tend to see them that way, but, but you know, the, the, if you look at sort of the initial plans for Medicare and Medicaid, if you look at the initial plans for Social Security, they are more expansive than what we ended up with. And I think the American Rescue Plan is a similar kind of thing. I'm still hoping for a $15 minimum wage person. I think the United States uh, is, would be better off with a $15 minimum wage or even a $20 minimum wage, or maybe even a 1776 minimum wage, because then if, you know, you, that know would be you could... <laughs> you can call it the freedom wage or something. And, and then if Republicans vote against it, you can you know, say that they hate freedom or something. I don't know. When um, say, sorry, when you say you're hopeful, I mean, does that mean you're expressing a desire to have it? In which case I, I, I'm in agreement with you. Or mm -hmm. are you hopeful that it can happen? Again, given the, the structural problems we have with the way the Senate operates. Right. I think uh, given the structure of the Senate at the moment, I think that's going to be very difficult to pass it um, right now. Two years from now, it might be a different situation because the, there seems to be, and uh, again, per, uh, uh, predicting election results is not something either of us particularly great at. But um, you know, there's a chance that the, the, comp the composition of the Senate will change, and there's a chance that um, that th this, if this rescue plan, American Rescue Plan Act, is as successful as it is, there may be a push for the $15 minimum wage, uh, you know, from other parts of the the population especially as some states are implementing it uh, independent of the federal government. Of course, the no, minimum uh, wage going back historically uh, starts with the New Deal. So right. there's a thematic link uh, with, with the rest of our conversation. But, but I, you know, apropos of the question of the states, this seems to me one area where um, federalism might actually work in favor of, of um, working people in the sense of instead of having the taking the fight at the national level, instituting the, the $15 minimum wage uh, at a state level might make might be easier to do and also make more sense, especially in states that have uh, higher wages, higher cost of living anyway. 
So the you know, the states that have already done it, like like Seattle, Washington State, would mm. you know uh, make sense. You know, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Democrat from West Virginia, fairly conservative Democrat, opposed this um, in part. I think on ideological grounds, but also because he thought a $15 minimum wage was unsustainable for companies in West Virginia because wages are so low in West Virginia. Um, now, we'd like to see wages rise everywhere, but in the, as a, in the interim, at mm. least introducing high, a higher minimum wage at the state level might be might be a way ahead, at least. Yeah, I mean, the, although, you know, uh, I think that might actually backfire on West Virginia in as much as, as West Virginia might see a population decline as people go to places with higher wages. That's um, right. So um, I'd also be in favor of a maximum wage legislation uh, while we're at it. But, uh, you know, that's probably a different story. I mean, one of the questions actually the Republicans have brought up in opposition to this bill is, is how we're going to pay for it, which is sort of uh, the, the common Republican trope with all of these pieces of legislation, whether it's stuff from the New Deal, whether it's stuff from the Great Society or now, is, is are we, uh, you know, mortgaging our children's future or, or something um, to pay for this. What's your thought about sort of deficit spending and how all this fits together? I think that they would be on stronger ground if they raised those same concerns when Trump was introducing his tax cuts a couple of years mm. ago, which were of comparable size and magnitude, but we're not going to benefit nearly as many people. Um, so I, I think that, but, but in answer to your question, you know, what aboutism isn't very helpful. So, so mm. I think that's a serious question, frankly. Uh, however, I think there's an argument in favor of undertaking significant, indeed massive public spending in response to a crisis. And, and uh, whether you afford that in the long term is a different question. But mm. I think as a response to the immediate crisis we're facing, especially if those economic prognostications um, that I alluded to earlier are correct and the United States is on the verge of a of a, of a, of a boom, hmm. then I, I think it can be afforded. I think if you close some of those tax, uh, if, you, if, you, if you raise taxes, that's the way to deal with uh, on the very, very wealthy. I think that's one way to uh, address that question. Yeah, I mean, that's how they paid for the New Deal um, with, with very high uh, top tax rates. Um, you know, one of the Monetary theory has changed recently. I think, you know, there's some economists now who say that deficit spending is fine. Uh, that's not something to worry about. And, and I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm not an economist, but um, it does seem as if we're thinking about this in, in different kinds of ways than, than they were necessarily uh, even uh, in the New Deal. Because there was always the, the, the fear that, that the government spending would, would lead to widespread inflation and other kinds of, of, of issues. Um, and consequentially, you know, the, the pull back from the New Deal that led to the rose of recession uh, and all of those kinds of things. Um, so David, uh, before we went on the air, I posed a question to you, which was a version of Bernie Sanders's quote, and I'm happy that Senator Sanders seems to agree with me. Is this the most significant piece of legislation, domestic legislation in America, or hmm. legislation, we don't have to make a distinction, uh, since the New Deal? Um, that's a good question. I would say no. Um, I mean, the, the most important legislation in my mind since the New Deal would be uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, which were, you know, fundamentally sort of reshaped the, 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 how the United States deals with questions of race and, and makes the, the promises of, of, of 
uh, the, the 14th and 15th amendments um, binding, or at least until uh, the, the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court. Um, those would be the ones I would point to as being the, the sort of most important pieces of legislation. Um, you know, I think what, what Bernie Sanders said, and, and he, he the, his, the, the quote that I had beginning of the, the episode is sort of telling, because he talks about working families, which is an interesting code word that can be read in a number of different ways. Um, and the, I also said the modern history of this country. Um, now, now, Bernie Sanders has been around for a long time. At, like Joe Biden, they are both born during the New Deal uh, and were both college kids during the Great Society. So, so they, you know, have, have lived through uh, a variety of, of uh, government programs and, and, and ebbs and flows in terms of the, the popularity of government action to, to fight poverty. What do you think? What, what other sort of, I mean, the, yeah, I, the difference is, is this is about, this is literally about money. Whereas, you know, the other ones were the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are about guaranteeing rights to citizens, which has a financial impact, but is, is a much more, it's a different category of legislation, at least in my mind. Sure. And I, I think, um, I think the fact it's in the conversation is testimony to how significant the act is. And, mm. <laughs> and, and it may well be uh, that, that um, well, as I said at the outset, we won't know how important and how successful this act is until, it's, until we see it a few years down the line, at least. Uh, I would add the Affordable Care Act to that list. Mm. I mean, we, we emphasize the limits and, and you know, and, but, but the achievement of the Affordable Care Act, and we've seen a lot of the benefits of the uh, Affordable Care Act in response to this crisis, in fact, because it's a public health crisis, among other things. Now, we can talk about the limits of the Affordable Care Act, and we've done so in the past. To some extent, those are the limits imposed on it by the circumstances in which it was mm. ado adopted and the opposition which it faced. But I would say, I would add... I think you're talking about the New Deal. I think, I think again, the, I agree with you on the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Uh, although others might, you know, uh, Senator Sanders might claim, look, without some measure of economic justice, those kinds of acts seeking to achieve political mm -hmm. equality have no meaning. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that many of the people who will benefit from the, uh, from what we hope will be the consequences and impact of, of this legislation are themselves uh, ethnic and racial minorities. It's a good thing. So, so it's not a, it's not a choice, but I mean, we've set up a false choice between mm. these things, of course. And we, I, I understand you wouldn't adhere to that. Um, but, but I think that, um, I, I think that uh, economic and social justice go hand mm. in hand with political, <laughs> political change. To and, be sure. And, and this is an opportunity and, to achieve that. And I think President Biden would agree with you about how important the, the Affordable Care Act is. If you remember the, the hot mic when, when Obama was signing it, Biden said, this is a big fucking deal. You know, and, I, and, and Obama, I think, was just by, by dint of his personality, not keen to, to uh, put a spotlight on his own accomplishments. And, that, and I think Biden is taking a very different tack here, uh, you know, doing a, a, a national tour to sort of promote the, the benefits of the American Rescue Plan after its passage. Um, is this a new direction for the Democrats? Are they going, or is this the Democratic Party a different party now than it was, say, under, under 
Clinton or Obama? Uh, it, oof, interesting. Uh, it could be. And so one of the problems that Obama faced, both with the Affordable Care Act and the American uh, Recovery Act uh, in 2009 and then 2010-11, is that there were still a significant number of conservative Democrats who were putting the brakes and pumping the brakes on those. Uh, mm. Apart from Joe Manchin, they don't exist anymore. I mean, the sorting that's happened politically in the United States is such that the Democratic Party has moved to the left in the same way that the Republican Party has moved to the right. And so I think that it's a, it could be a signal of, a, of not necessarily a new direction for the Democrats, but it's a confirmation of the direction they've been traveling, the direction of travel over the past few electoral cycles. Uh, what will be interesting to see is if they can bring the electorate with them. And if this, if these, if the features mm. of this act are popular, as I hope they will be because I hope they're successful, then that should benefit the Democrats. I mean, you alluded to the elections in 2022. Um, usually midterm elections go against the party in power, um, owing to the delay in the census results, which won't come out until later this year rather than in the spring, owing to the control that Republicans have over gerrymandering at the state level. You know, there are all kinds of reasons to suggest the Democrats won't do very well in next year's midterm elections. One reason to suggest they might do well would be if this act is a real success. So uh, I, I think I, I'm, I'm giving a long-winded non-answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess, sorry, to put it simply, I don't think it's a new direction. I think it's a confirmation of the direction they've been headed for a while. Uh, whether they brought the public along or not remains to be seen. That's my answer. Hmm. What do you think? Well, there's one of the interesting notes that I've observed with the Biden administration that's different from Clinton or Obama is that Clinton and Obama both gave a lot of lip service, and I think they meant it, but at least lip service to bipartisanism, uh, yeah. bipartisan action. And I think Biden here is saying, uh, you know, bipartisanship would be good, but I'm more interested in, in whether this is bipartisan in the sense of being supported by the majority of the American population. Um, you know, and, and I think this bill is a good example of this, where it got no Republican support. And as you pointed out, uh, it got no Republican support in Congress, but it actually has a decent amount of, of Republican support uh, in the nation as a whole. And that's, I think, a very different approach to governing um, than, than, than his predecessors did. Um, and this may reflect, you know, um, Biden's very long tenure in the Senate. He understands how the Senate works. He understands how, how government works, uh, maybe in a more profound way than, than either uh, Clinton and Obama did. Both of them were, were definitely um, students of American politics and American political history. Um, so I think that may be a shift in terms of, of sort of the uh, governing ethos um, under, under Biden. We'll see how long that lasts and whether we can keep a coalition together if, that, if that's what that is. But it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about politics. Yeah, I mean, politics only works if you win. I mean, they, 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 this bill doesn't happen if the Democrats don't pick up those two seats in the by-elections in Georgia in, Georgia. in early January. Um, and, and so, I mean, that, that's the real lesson to take from this, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, and and uh, you're right that Obama and Clinton, 
I think we're more, not more committed to bipartisanship. I think a different version of bipartisanship. They believe the Republicans would work with them if they were reasonable. I think the, the scars that they have are a lesson to Biden and an object yeah. lesson to Biden that they, you know, not to waste your time on this. I mean, they didn't spend six months dancing around with the Republicans in Congress on this bill, which is how things used to work. They just, to say they rammed it through might be, you know, they, they put it through. They were, they were ready to go. It was, mm. it was, you know, they were ready to go from day one with it. And they, they, they didn't waste a lot of time talking to the Republicans because they recognized the Republicans in Congress, at least, weren't going to deal with them honestly and in good faith. And so they just ignored them. Now, that's not good for the system in the long run, but, but um, it benefits the country in the short run in terms of this legislation and getting something significant passed. Right, well, we will have to see uh, in, in the weeks and months and years to come what the what the long term effects of this are. I mean, it could be we could be right. This is big and this could be we could be very wrong. And this turns out to be, a, a you know, even despite its size, a relatively short term in terms of its effects. Please. Yeah, just a sugar high. We got our 1400 bucks and I don't know, spent it on, <laughs> spent it on Netflix. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Right. Uh, time for last drop strength. What you got? I want to uh, pay tribute to our, our friend, Ben Marsh, uh, who I mentioned a few weeks ago. And then Ben, of he, course. He of the family singing talent. Yes, of the Marsh family singers who had a write-up in the New York Times and everything else. But Ben is a very, very fine historian um, at the University of Canterbury here in the UK. And uh, Ben's book, Unraveled Dreams, Silk in the Atlantic World, 1500 to 1840, Cambridge University Press, uh, which came out last year, uh, recently won the... 2021 Hagley Prize in Business History. And uh, Ben's a good guy. It's a very, very fine book. And I just want to congratulate him on, on winning that prize in business history. I'm a little disappointed because the Grammys were last night. And I hope that Ben might win a, a very unique double of winning the Hagley Prize and a Grammy <laughs> in the same year. But he did not. I guess there was no Grammy for online um, COVID-inspired song parodies. So I would like to create one, the Frankie, an award, and give Ben the Frankie that goes along with the his Hagley Prize. So, so congratulations okay. to Ben uh, for his achievement uh, and his book. On, I mean, he presented some of that early work, early research for that book in, to our seminar, David, as you'll know. Mm, and remember, yes, I remember. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's it's really good stuff. His history of silk and the silk trade. So, congratulations, Ben. What yeah. about you, David? I'm just curious about whether Ben, you know, how he ranks the bean on the New York Times versus winning a book prize. Uh, it's very, two, two very different kinds of kinds of uh, recognition. Uh, I want to recommend a, a podcast because uh, um, obviously everyone listening to this is a podcast listener. Uh, it's uh, Make Me Smart with Kai Rizdahl and, and Molly Wood. Uh, Kai uh, Rizdahl and Molly Wood are both journalists uh, at NPR. They, they do... Uh, the Marketplace uh, show, which is a business show. But this is like their other show that they do after doing, this is like their after hours, if you will, podcast. So it's a little bit more- Unplugged. Exactly, sort of lighthearted. They drink sometimes during the show. Until next week, Frank. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 